We're going to be in Exodus chapter 14. We're going to watch the Lord do some amazing things for the nation. And, uh, and he's the same God. He's immutable. He hasn't changed, right? Has he? Somehow our God of Old Testament different than the God of New Testament? Okay, well, let's uh, see if we can increase our faith today and strengthen in our love for him more. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so glad to be gathered, whether physically here or those that are watching in the live stream right now. We give you the praise that you designed the church. We are your people. Christ purchased us with his own blood. We're called your bride. We are very special to you, Lord. We are your family. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our older brother. He is the first among many brethren. Uh, what a special references given to the church. Lord, may we not take it for granted, Lord. May we uh, not just loosely think about the church. And I pray, Lord, this, uh, these times that we've gone through uh, will strengthen us, cause us to love Christ more, to know him more, to, uh, to live out the truths that we understand, and then cause us to love one another and long to be together, Lord. So I pray you would help us in each and every one of those situations, Lord. Lord, we want to look at your word tonight. We're always encouraged to hear from you. We thank you that Riverbend is a Bible-teaching church. We're at our best when our, our noses are down in this book and our fingers are on the pages. We learn so much. and We honor you and love you and it changes us and helps us be better husbands and wives and children and neighbors and workers and so forth, Lord. But ultimately, it gives us so much hope in you. So help us continue to be a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, drawing other believers that want to know the Bible better, drawing unbelievers that hear the Bible. Because from the Word of God, you give faith from there, Lord. And so we pray that you would just help us hold that line, Lord, till you come. In Jesus' name, amen. I entitled the sermon, Fear Not, God is Fighting for You. <laughs> I love that thinking. I love the thinking about that. My God is fighting for me. We sing some songs that Hayward will lead us in and remind us. And, and uh, boy, I hope you don't miss the significance of that. I mean, God, creator of all the world, you know, is... is Taking rounds for us. He's, he's fighting for us. And you see this so much in this text. And even though there's great fear of the nation and, and they quickly forget sometimes what this great God has done, um, he fights on and leads this nation on. Well, a bit of a context as we look at uh, Exodus chapter 4 is the Israelites are, are on the move. They're out of Egypt and the Lord is directing them and they're, they're moving away kind of from Egypt. But their troubles are not done yet. Pharaoh and his court of gestures, <laughs> I call them, they've now realized what they've lost. They've lost a tremendous labor force. And they've decided, as you'll see in this text, to go back uh, and go get these people. Now, soon the Israelites will realize, uh-oh, Pharaoh and his army are coming and they become very terrified. And we'll look at this and get an idea of what, what the feelings were. And I think you'll sympathize with them at some level. Now, they find themselves trapped. They're, they're, they're outside of Egypt proper, but they're still inside of Egypt's territory where Pharaoh has reign and rule, but they're up against the sea. And so God is moving them around right to where he has them. One of the things that struck me is God sees their faint-heartedness. He sees their faint-heartedness. And you know, we all go through that. We go through times where we are faint-hearted. And he comes and he assures them through Moses that he will deliver them. He, he gives them direct prophecy in the first four verses what he's going to do in 5 through 31. I'm going to do this for you. These are great promises. We cling to these things. And he'll deliver his people and he'll wipe out the Egyptian army and he'll magnify his name in an indisputable way uh, as we look, that, look through this. But as we think, I want you to think about a few questions. I already said this has God changed. I think we have to wrestle through this as Christians because we get into this New Testament era this, under the New Covenant and sometimes we don't think about this God 
who is so magnificent outwardly, we see in things like Exodus chapter 14, we somehow think he's on vacation or something. And let me say this. Greater than any sea that he has split, or any person he's raised from the dead, is the miracle of God's word. I want you to think about that for a little bit. Most people, in certain aspects of religion, will will want God to do these split seas, raise people from the dead, do all those things. I think that's the minor work. This book that you have in your lap, that you're looking at, is God's divine, laid out plan. And for God, the God of creator, to speak and give us this, there's, some, there's nothing more greater than this. Because we get all the miracles. We get all of the God-given knowledge of God right here in this text. I, what I want to do is give you a higher view of God's word. I think so often preachers bring God's word down in their performance of their preaching. They don't get people's noses in the book. And so now they're, they're looking for something, some kind of experience. And yet you have every miracle you could ever imagine right in front of you given to you by God's word. And so it is certainly the greater text. So has God changed well, the Bible says he's immutable. Do you believe that? He would have to change if there was something wrong with him, right? You, we change because we need to change, right? <laughs> he doesn't need to change, so he doesn't change. So do you believe in immutability? So as we study that, I want you to think about that. Is your faith weak at times? I think every one of us probably say, yeah, there are times of faint-heartedness. There's times of being weak. Well, How strong is the role of fear in your life then? So we want to think about it as we go through it. How strong is the role of fear in your life? Think about things you're afraid of, things about situations, whatever whatever it is that that brings fear into your life. I want want you to think about how strong is the role of fear? There's probably some that are hearing this that it's too strong. It's too strong. Fear dominates you. you you're, you're gripped. You can't go. You can't move. You, you're just petrified. Then there's others in this room are hearing this. That they, you don't have enough fear of God. You see the difference? Ah, I'm just going to do whatever I want. You don't have an awe and respect, a fear for God. And so that can be a problem. And so I want you to think about these things. And and what causes us not to trust God as we look at this? This is a great narrative. It's a true story that happens, but yet there's so much practical uh, truth for us to adhere to here. Let's look at first point. God's direction for our lives comes from his foreknowledge. God's direction for our lives comes from his foreknowledge. Look at the first two verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihiroth, between Migdol and the sea, and you shall camp in front of Baal Zephron, opposite by the sea. Now, this place, this Hiroth area, is, is usually understood in an Egyptian worm to mean um, a region of salt marshes. And there's lots of people trying to figure out the path. And what I'm going to tell you is it's going to be very hard to know exactly where they were at this time. Um, but it, 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 could, it could be, and possibly is referring to this eastern border that Egypt held. So, so get the scene, there's the Egypt proper where Pharaoh reigned and, he, and the slaves served in Goshen and so forth. And on. But outside their borders, they had limits, other farther out limits. So if somebody was ventured into the country, they could spot them before they got there. So they're out there in that area that is still controlled by Egypt, and there's probably outposts out there, and there's spies out there, and there's people sending messages back and forth where Israel's going. Now, McDole here is a term actually borrowed from the Jewish language, and it means a watchtower, and it, and, it, and it probably applies to these fortresses that were out there on the eastern border. And then Baal Zephron, as you see in verse 2 there, was a the name of a Canaanite god, and he was worshipped in some mountains in that area, several mountains. And so people try to go back and find exactly where these were, um, but they're, they're fairly difficult um, to do that. One help is in Numbers 33, which Moses 
traces back and writes down in Numbers 33 where they went and how they got there. And this Pi Hiroth there, Harith, I can't quite say the Egyptian word, um, is located east of these mountains like where Baal Zephron was. So this, this puts the nation back into the zone. They're still in this zone controlled by Egypt. And again, there's much debated about this. So just kind of give you an idea where they're moving around it. But look at verse 3 with me. For Pharaoh said to the, uh, for, Pharaoh, uh, for Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, this is God here speaking through Moses, they are wandering aimlessly in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. Now, this wandering back into Egypt's territory or along the edge of it gave Pharaoh reason to believe that they were confused and they were lost. The word wandering here aimlessly is it's only used another time and it's used in Joel I think chapter 1, verse 18, it means cattle that don't have any feed inside of fences. They're just like wandering around looking for something to eat. So, so he, think, he thinks they're lost. And they're still within his boundary where he can go get them. So he sees his ex-slaves. He sees and thinks possibly they're unable to cope with their freedom. And he thinks this is an opportunity to recapture them and put them back into servitude. But the Lord himself is behind this. He's behind our wanderings at times, right? He's behind this. He's behind both the route of the Israelites. He's moving them around. Remember, he was, last week we saw he was keeping them away from this group that later are called the Philistines. He's keeping them away from them so that they don't get caught in a, in a war with them. And yet at the same time, he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. So he's got control of all this. And on top of all this, he's fighting for them. So now we kind of have the scene, look at verse 4. And then he says this, I will harden the Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and they did so. Now Pharaoh will, will not find any greater success in going after Israel now than he did when the ten plagues hit him. He's going to attempt to fight God again. And God's purposes are, are not only to carry the welfare of, of Israel, but he intends to use this occasion to display to, to the Egypt, to the world, listen to this, to even to the future enemies of Israel for the next years and years to come as they move through the wilderness, as they move through the land of Canaan, that this event will mark that they have a God that you do not want to mess with. And he's laying that down. Now, God uses his opposition of Pharaoh and his armies um, as a platform to gain himself glory. And I think that's what is really an outstanding or a truth that just pops out of Exodus. And we see it over and over that God uses these incredible circumstances, these almost um, unsurmountable circumstances to not only just rescue people, but judge those who go after his people. And so he's He's targeting them to make himself more glorious. Now, notice how easy it is for God to once again harden the heart of Pharaoh. The verse just says, and this is again, this is the prophetic part of it, verses 1 through 4. This is what he's telling them, what he's going to do through Moses. 5 through 31, we're going to see him actually do this. But he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Just like that. I have absolute control of him. And of course, Solomon wrote this in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 21, 1, the king's heart is like the channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it where he wishes. So what the Lord does here will ensure that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's the goal. Now he's been doing this all along. He said that all the way through the plagues. I'm doing this so they will know there is one God. There is none beside me. There was none like me. So here he goes again. And notice at the end of verse 4 that the nation of Israel is very obedient at this time, even though doubtlessly there's some fear here. We'll see that in a minute. Notice that they did, and they did so. So Moses told them what God said. So God's speaking through his servant Moses. He tells them all this. I'm going to harden the heart. He's going to chase after us. But God's going to be honored because he's going he's to take on Pharaoh and his armies. He's going to destroy them. And everybody's going to know that he is Lord. And so the nation said, okay. Let's go. Let's do that. Now, this reference to the nation's um, instruction to follow God's direction, even though it seems hard, is to tell, tell them that they are kind of turning back. Um, you'll, you'll see that 
uh, as he directs them back, they're, they're, they're actually turning back. And when you kind of map them out, they're kind of turning back towards Egypt a little bit. And that, that probably was very, uh, caused them a lot of nerves, caused them anxiety to, to go back to maybe where your slavery was. And sometimes it seems we need to go back at times. There's times the Lord wants us to go back and trust him as he takes us through these difficult things. Now, notice in verse 1 through 4, you see these prophecies of of this foreknowledge of God. But then in the rest of it, he's going to start to fulfill this. So so God, God not only knows the path that we need to take with Israel, he's doing that. You're going to he, he, he tells them to turn around, to go back, go back the way I want you to go. And yet at the same time, he knows exactly where he's going to bring you out and how he's going to glorify himself. And we, we see this all, all the time in different passages of scriptures. Romans 8 is one of those beautiful passages that he, he gives us this, this direction. God causes us to, to work all things out for the, for the good of those who love him according to his purposes. And, and, and ultimately, after um, predestining us and calling us and, and our foreknowledge and so forth, he brings us to glory. So he takes us through this process. And here the nation right now, right now, is obedient to him. Second thought. There's no, there's no dismissing the power and hatred of the world. There's just no dismissing the power and the hatred of the world. Uh, the Bible really tells us that the world um, hates Christ, and if they hate Christ, they will hate the followers of Christ. And that's always been true. Um, when you think about the nation of Israel, this little tiny nation, even to this day, they're on just a very small portion of what God has given them. They're, they're not even close to the land that was promised to them. Um, and yet, look how many nations just hate the nation of Israel. And when nations like ours align ourselves politically or militarily wise, we're hated because we're friends with them in some ways. And so you just constantly find this. And then down through the ages, you know, the Bible, have, people have read the Bible who really don't believe the Bible. And they look at what God did and the nations that he crushed along the way, giving the, the nation of Israel the promised land. People still hold grudges towards that. Even to this day, I've, I've talked and witnessed to people that go, well, I just don't like the God of the Bible because he wiped out nations to give his people all this, all this land. And of course, we you go down and sit with them and go, you, you know who those people are. <laughs> How godless and pagan and the rejection of God that they, they held to. Um, and yet, there's just this constant hatred. Now, look at verse 5. Let's see how this starts to play itself out. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had change of heart towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Well, Pharaoh's reaction to the situation was just as God predicted. Remember in, in verse chapter 2, um, two he says for Israel to turn back. Three, he says, the Pharaoh will say to the the sons, hey, they're wandering, they're aimless out there. And four says, I'm going to harden his heart and he's going to come back to you. So exactly what happens that God said. So verse five, we start to see the fulfillment of what God said. He looks and says, these people are wandering aimless. Um, I'm going after them. Now, doubtlessly, Pharaoh had guys out there. He was receiving information back what this nation was doing. You know, when you look at warfare, or even modern warfare, though we may be spying from a satellite, we know, hey, these guys are starting to move. They're pressing into this country. We shall probably get there. That's all going on. That's all going on back here. They, you know, they don't have, you know, satellite radios to get back, but they're reporting back to what's happening. So he knows what's happening. Now, they were dangerously close to leaving his borders at one time, but God turned them back in, um, back into that Egyptian control area. So it was clear this was, was not just some three-day worship trip. They're wandering around out there, and Pharaoh wants them back. Now, Pharaoh and his officials, they have this change of heart, uh, and it's a hard one. It's, <laughs> it's not a good one. And it's clear they've, they've not learned, they have not learned the superiority of Yahweh yet, have they? And, and just think about this. They've lost their firstborn, culminating in the, in the tenth plagues. They've, they've lost their livestock industry. Um, much of, 
uh, of other industry is wiped out. Their people are an absolute disaster. They're coming off of disease and boils and hailstorms. Everything's a mess. But, but now their nation's in ruins and, and they need a labor force. And so here they go. Let's go get these people. Now, it doesn't make any sense until you realize that God's hardening in this man's heart to do things that you go, why is he doing this? Now, ultimately, you can't forget he's doing this to bring glory to God. He doesn't know that, but that's what God is doing. Look at verse six. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Verse seven, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel, and the sons of, uh, sons of Israel, as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all their horses and the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea besides Pi Harath in front of Baal Zephron. Now, in verse 6, it makes it clear that Pharaoh did not delegate the task to someone else. He takes command. Notice that. He's going out with them. This is his deal. Um, and notice, I, I would imagine some of you Bible students are going, well, where'd they get all the horses? Because, right, a lot of livestock got killed, so some of you should have been thinking, where'd they get the horses from? I think this is a good, this is a good question. I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't say. Now, here's my thought. He probably traded for them. There's other nations very close that they would probably be partners with in some way. Uh, Egypt still had a lot of money, had a lot of wealth. Uh, they probably traded for some of those. Also, by the time you get to the seventh plague, the Bible says there were Egyptians who believed in God. So some of them actually brought their livestock in so they weren't killed by the hail. And maybe he purchased them that way. But whatever these are, doubtlessly they were the best because that's what Pharaoh would do. He's got 600 plus chariots uh, with soldiers loaded on to take off to these, these Israelites. Now, clearly Pharaoh had um, replaced these chariots and, and he's, he's ready to go. Now, Pharaoh's heart, once again, is hardened. He's stubborn in his pride and, and that pride overtakes reality. Have you ever seen this happen? Was somebody make such... Stupid choices. I shouldn't say that. The kids are in here. Dumb choices. We used to make the kids give a quarter, wouldn't right? Whenever somebody said that, um, uh, make dumb choices. You go. You're, are you kidding me? He just wiped you out with words. So, so this is what sin does, and this is what a hard heart does. This is what stubborn pride does. It overtakes reality. Many of us have um, family members or friends who get caught in. Drugs or alcohol or some kind of other abuse of something. And, and you just go, what? Do you see? You're, you've lost your wife. You've lost your home. You've lost. And they're just stuck in it. Their heart is hardened and their sin is just pulling them around. The world's most powerful leader now is summoning up the last of the strength of his military power to go fight God. When you study this text, 14 times in the chapters 14 and 15, it refers to the chariots of Egypt. 12 times it refers to the horses and the horsemen. He's gathered up all that he has to go out and really fight against God one more time. And though devastated by the plagues, he still wants to go. Now, I think they're probably still a very powerful army. Um, I did a little look into the chariot thing um, it seems that somewhere around 1700 BC, the Egyptians mastered how to use the chariot, how to pull with horses, and, and how to figure out how to fight warfare with chariots. And, and a lot of ancient hieroglyphics painted on walls depict uh, a two wheeled chariot with three men in it a driver, a warrior who would often be shooting arrows or throwing spears, and then, a, then an official that was in that. So it's 600 chariots times three, right? So, so for the first wave. Now, though they've been devastated by the plagues of Egypt, the army's still powerful in, in, in some aspect, right? But then you think about this. You're going, there's 600 chariots coming first, possibly these horsemen and armies behind them, the next wave that's coming. There are 600,000 men, the Bible said, not counting the wives and children of the nation of Israel. 
That's interesting, huh? Well, well, just think just a little bit. You've got a ragtag group. For 400 years, they've been in Egypt. They have not fought a war. They, they, they're not, they're generation after generation of non-warriors. They have no military experience. And so Pharaoh probably felt confidence. That may have all he had left after, that he could muster up after all the things that happened, the plagues. But he had a confidence that he could take them. Now, I don't think that's all that he had. Look at verse 9 with me. The Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. I think that and connects the horses with those chariots. But then there's a comment in your Bible, and he says, his horsemen and then and his army. Now, there's a lot of people who think it's talking again about the chariots, but then there's a group of theologians that think there's another wave that they can muster up these other foot soldiers and other horsemen, probably not as good as horses they used to have, and come behind that wave of 600 chariots. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it's quite possible that these, these was not just the 600 chariots. So, it's possible there's another war machine coming right behind them. But also notice in verse 8, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh and his army pursued Israel with great boldness. The word boldness is literally the Hebrew word for a high hand. A high hand, and that's not a, a great term. Um, Israel had left Egypt with really an upper hand, right? They came out, they took all their gold and silver with them and, and just went out and, and the people were pushing them out. They didn't want them there. But now... Now Pharaoh is, is coming after him. He, he's coming with boldness. He has a high hand. He, 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 he want, I think it's more built around he's got some wrath pinned up. He, he wants to go get these men. Also notice in verse 9 that the Bible says it overtook them. This was an interesting word to kind of chase down. It's used of a huntsman. Of, of a hunter used to overtake his pride. So, so this gives kind of a real sense that this Egyptian army with Pharaoh at the lead, they're going to hunt down the Israelites. Their goal is to hunt them down, do whatever it takes. You have to kill some of them, you have to kill some of them, but bring them back. So they're, they're hunting. Now, one, just, there's just one major problem with that. The God who slayed their firstborn is with them. <laughs> And they're going to run right into him. And Pharaoh has not thought through this. His heart is hard. He is making poor decisions. Three, fear exposes the hearts. Fear exposes the heart and its lack of faith. Fear exposes the heart and the lack of faith. Well, the focus of the narrative now switches from Egyptians and then now turns to the fear that the Israelites have. And you, you just kind of watch this turn. Notice in verse 10 the things that begin to happen. And Pharaoh, as Pharaoh drew near, uh, doubtlessly they probably had some people out there scouting and seeing them. Possibly this great cloud of dust. The son, sons of Israel looked and behold the, uh, the Egyptians were marching after them. It kind of gives a bigger feel, right, that possibly there are chariots and even foot soldiers. And they became very frightened, so the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Well, this massive fighting force that seems to be building here with these Egyptian chariots, followed by horsemen and possible more armies, it's stirring up this cloud, and these Israelites are, are seeing this. And even though the Lord had told them in, in these first few verses here, told them that he was going to harden the heart, he was going to cause Pharaoh to pursue him, the sons of Israel become overcome by fear here. And they cry out to the Lord. They cry out to the Lord. You know, I, I got thinking about this, and I, I thought, well, it, it'd be nice to learn the lesson to trust God and to, in difficult circumstances come, whether it's health issues or financial issues or relationship issues or whatever it may be. It'd be really nice to trust the Lord. But there are times, even these strongest believers, myself included, we get overtaken by fears and anxieties. There's time that happens. And, and of course, God's word tells us there's going to be trials and tribulations in our life. Um, uh, and yet, God calls us to cry out. I, I got thinking just about a few verses in the Psalms that I love. I love Psalms 34. It's been a pass, uh, just a text that I found myself in through troubled times through life. But Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. 
Psalms 107, verse 6, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. Last Sunday, we looked at a passage in 1 Peter 5, 7 about casting all your anxieties because, on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. And, and, I, and, I, and I want to encourage, and men, that's probably a little harder for us at times. It's shame, shameful to say that, but we should at times cry out to the Lord. But there's a great difference between crying out to the Lord and not believing his word. Right? So we may cry out to the Lord, but where are we going to turn? We're going to turn to the word. There we're going to find the promises of God. That should stop our crying and strengthen our belief. Does that make sense? Because what happens to too many Christians, they just keep crying. They cry and cry and cry and cry out to God and never look to his word to find his promises. And so now they become susceptible to the attack of Satan who wants to come and, and pounce on them. And yet, right in this text, God told them verbally through Moses, I'm going to harden his heart, he's going to come after you, and I'm going to crush him. And yet, they got to this point where they cried out. Now look at verse 11 and 12. Then they said to Moses, this is where things start to go off the rails a bit, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us a way to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Well, what a difficult saying this is. You can see the results of their fear now has turned to panic in sinful, fear-driven responses. This is where our sin, when we don't deal with it, turns verbal, right? And it starts to come out of us in a way that is far less than God-honoring and really exposes our hearts, both our lack of trust. And often sinful fear causes people to blame others in the situation, and so the Israelites, are, they're smart enough to know not to blame God, so who do they attack? <laughs> they attack Pastor Moses. <laughs> That's what they do. Let's get this guy. And it wasn't, look, they, they make this whole comment about graves, you know, and what a place to make a comment about tombs and graves. Well, you know, Egyptian was, is documented about their embalming and their practices of burial and and so this comment was just sinful, sarcastic, because Egypt had plenty of places to be buried, and it was highly thought of to die and be buried properly. This was their pagan belief for the afterlife. And in the moment that they were, they were far more afraid of Pharaoh than they, than they believed the promises of God. And so then this bad stuff comes out of us. Does that make sense? And you look back, and Gene and I were just talking about this. When we react poorly to one another or we, we go through a struggle, is, there's a moment in time where our fears or our frustrations are far greater than the promises of God. And we give in to it. And we find ourselves pretty miserable. And pretty soon you'll be out in the wilderness, walking around out there, going nowhere. And it's happened to all of us. The Israelites here are referring back when they say, look, we told you not to do this. They're referring back to chapter 5, verse 21, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, look, God has sent me. He has spoken to me. I've dealt with him. He said he wants his people to go. Let him go. And, of course, Pharaoh said, I don't know your God. And he makes, remember, he makes them make more bricks. He works, puts the workload on. That's what they're referring back to here. But this slavery mentality that the nation seems to have for a sinful master is bad, right? They just automatically want to go back to slavery. That's, that's a sign of unregenerate, you know, un, 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 unregenerate heart. Wanted to turn back to your master of slavery. Wanted to run back to those things. And think about the last least half, half a year while these plagues were happening, their lives were very different. They weren't probably doing so much slave work. God was judging Egypt. There wasn't a whole lot of brick making at that point, most likely. They had forgotten how heavy the burden of slavery was. And their sinful fear now is driving them back 
to a, to a life of slavery. Paul deals with this in the book of Galatians in a spiritual way, right? He has given them the gospel. He's given the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way you can inherit the kingdom of God, the only way you can see his face and have eternal presence and security with him is through Jesus Christ alone. And he preached this very pure gospel to them, and yet they want to turn back. So he warns them in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you're heirs through God. And he's, he's on this text, why do you want to go back? Why don't you put yourself back under the yoke of slavery? And that's, that's what happens. And sometimes Christians are so afraid, they begin to move to works instead of a spiritual life with the Lord. Look at Romans 6, just real quick with me. Think, this passage in Romans 6 cannot be taught enough. Um, as you think about this text here, Romans 6, verse 12. And this is what's happening in them. Sin is trying to regain reign, regain authority in their lives. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Well, you see that in them. There's this sinful turning back to slavery. It's trying to Get back what it lost. It wants its obedience back to the lust of the flesh, right? Verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. So clearly there was a problem within the early church and the Roman church that they, they said, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus, but yet we want to turn back to our sinful behavior and let that stuff have control of us. And, and Paul's saying, look, you don't present your members of your body to sin as instruments to righteousness. That's not what we're about anymore. God's saved us. He's given us the righteousness of Christ. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. Slave, slaves. Slaves were dead people in chains, weren't they? Isn't it hard to study our own American history and see what we did uh, to, to, to very good nation of people? You enslave them and they become dead people walking with chains on. And they think that's the, what Paul is getting at here spiritually. You want to go back to this. this. This is sin resulting in death or it's obedience resulting in righteousness. Which is it? What are you going to follow? But thanks be to God that, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed and you've been freed from your sins. And what I love about the stories of the Old Testament is they, they directly are easy to illustrate to spiritual role, spiritual situations in our own life. How often do we want to turn back? Notice verse 13 and 14. Moses responds. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, look at this phrase, you will never see them again. Well, at least he believed what God said. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. So Moses immediately reminds them not to be afraid. Believe God's word. God's going to do something you can't do. He's going to do something you can't do. Do we read? I mean, do, I, think it's, I think it's a good charge for us to be reminded not to be afraid. I think that's probably very important in this time of life. It doesn't mean to be ignorant. That's different. But don't be afraid. And I think right now so many people are struggling with fear of this virus. And, and again, it's, um, it's not to be trifled with. But yet... We have passage after passage. We were in Philippians chapter 4 and Peter, 1 Peter 5 and Psalms 139. Passage after passage has come from this pulpit reminding us that you can't add a day to your life. You can't, you can't die premature. God has, has you hemmed in. He, he knows you. He knows when you lie down and when you rise up. He, he knows your anxieties and your fears. He knows the Satan who prowls to try to jump on you and te teaches you how, how to stay away from that and follow him. And yet fear is this enslaving tool of Satan. 
And we as believers should not be turning back. Notice he says in this text, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. The word salvation, we could easily translate that from the Hebrew text, uh, the word deliverance. Stand by and watch the Lord deliver. That's what he's saying. You need to do nothing but watch. (laughs) Boy, I love that about God. As soon as we put our hand in, what happens? Screw the whole thing up, right? Stand back and watch me. Notice the word stand firm. I love this term. It's a military term. A lot of military terms in the Old Testament, right? Um, uh, it's another military team. means that um, hold your ground and don't flee. Exactly what we talked about in 1 Peter last week. Don't, the Bible didn't say flee from Satan. Never in the Bible does it say. It says to stand firm in your faith. He's telling the exact same thing. Stand firm in a faith of a God who just did 10 plagues. Wipe them out. He's going to do the same with these people. Watch me. Watch me do this. Verse 14 The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I think verse 14 reminds us and them that the Lord is fighting for them. He he did all the work and the plagues. He defended them and he's there to help them. And then the statement, just back up just a minute in verse 13 there. um, If you look at the end of verse 13, he says, For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Some strong language there. Forever? I think there's eternity involved in that as well. But, but, I mean, this is scary, right? I'm going to deal with these Egyptians once and for all. Think about our God who has the strength to, to say, that's enough, you're done, you'll never see my people again. Now, it's a hard lesson to learn that God wants to deliver us without our help, isn't it? And that is the the way he designed salvation, right? Our, our, our best works, the best things we have to offer are just filthy rags. But it's also how he delivers us in great times of need. The Bible tells us to go to the throne of grace in a time of need. He delivers, he delivers time and time again. There's an interesting statement in Numbers chapter 21, verse 14. There it's talking about the borders of Israel. What were the borders going to be and how they were going to take all these borders and take this land before they ever went in. And there it says that the book of the wars of the Lord was opened. It's only used here in one place. The book of the wars of the Lord. Well, we don't know what that book is. It's not around. I don't have a copy in my office. I wish I did. I think I actually have the copy. I think it's right here. Um, But possibly, I read quite a bit on this because I, I, I really had not seen this before because um, I was trained along with Numbers because Numbers reflects back a lot what happened in here. But apparently this book was a book of sayings and songs, possibly, I think, probably written by Moses with the recordings of all of God's victories that he had done. And, and they broke that open every once in a while and they just started reading of the victories of God. And we, I don't know about you, I grew up in some different kinds of churches at times, but some of the things they did were very well. They, they would just do a Sunday night praise and uh, sing victory in Jesus and have people stop in between songs and say a victory that God has done in your life. People would stand up and say a victory. And, and that's what I think this book was about, to remind this nation, look what he has done. When you're afraid of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the giants in the land, look what God has done. We lose, we lose our concept, we lose our understanding at times because fear will rob you of that. And when you become afraid, you shrink God in your own mind, not literally, but you shrink him in your own mind and you try to muscle up and do it yourself. Notice the end of 14, he says just... Just keep quiet, be still. He was given their hearts a statement to trust in the Lord. And of course, that's what the psalmist says. Stop striving, cease from your striving, be still, know that I am the Lord. Fear often exposes our hearts and reveals a lack of faith. Resulting, in these words I just wrote down today, I said, resulting in spiritual discomfort. I don't know how I got that, but I just was sitting there thinking... I was thinking about what happens to me when 
my fear is exposed in my heart that reveals a lack of faith, I have a lot of spiritual discomfort. That means spiritual depression. That means um, afraid that God's not going to come through or I got to step up and pull myself up and get this solved somehow. All of that is spiritual discomfort, isn't it? Then be still, cease striving, and know that I'm God. Fourth, never fear the Lord is here. Never fear the Lord is here. Look at verse 15 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. (laughs) It's unclear how to understand verse 15 a little bit. I think it's the narrative. We don't have quite all the story. But it is possible that Moses was caught up in the moment as well. Possibly, maybe, he's looking back and seeing this dust storm going, oh man, here we go again. (laughs) Uh, Maybe, right? Because it seems fairly sharp, doesn't it? Then the Lord, Yahweh, says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Now, I think most likely he's referring to the nation. But that's directly to Moses. Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Uh, Maybe the sight of these forces barreling down And this Israelite, this ragtag group of ex-slaves, fear arose and doubt maybe in Moses. We've seen that happen before in him. And it is possible God was responding to some, maybe some hidden fear in there. But maybe Moses started crying out to the Lord, but but it seemed in the middle of that fear, the Lord hollers back at him and says, get the people moving. People ask me all the time, well, I I think I need to pray about that. Well, let's say, wait a minute. You're going to pray about a promise God already said in the Scripture? I mean, there's things we have to pray about. We don't know quite how God's going to do. He wants us to come before him, wants us to wait on him. But there are clear things in the Bible that I tell people, I'm not against praying. But here's a verse that says, go do it. You know, I need to pray about loving my wife as Christ loves the church. (laughs) What? (laughs) You don't pray about those, you go do it. So it's almost like God says, hey, time to go. Verse 16. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through in the midst of the sea on dry land. So Moses, here's the mouthpiece of God. The staff represents the power of God. We talked about that before. He uses this word divide is the idea here. It conveys the idea of separate or split apart. And here the word points to this, the power of the creator who who has the knowledge of the deep, right? He has the knowledge of the, of the ocean, the seas. He knows them because he spoke them into existence and formed them, right? And he's the one who is undeniably in control of every wave. And, and I think here God discloses his mastery. I'm not gonna do this. Stick that staff out. I'm gonna split the seas. Proverbs chapter three, verse 20 says, by his knowledge, the deep waters were broken and the skies dripped with dew, your rule of swelling, you rule the swelling seas. And then, of course, Jesus himself in Mark 4 4, he stands up, rebukes him, and the disciples go, Whoa, even the wind and sea obey him. This is God, right? And this staff represents the power of God. And so the scene in our text is one where a body of water is split into a pathway forms between the two stretches of water. And the scriptures. They just don't match these foreign views that come out. They talk about, well, there's a place in the sea where it's really shallow and this wind came up. And, you know, drowning the best soldiers in the world in two feet of water. But everybody's always trying to get away from the supernatural. Don't let them do it. God's supernatural. Let's go back. Oh, let's go back to Genesis 1 1. Let's see what you do with this one. In the beginning, God speaks in the creation. So this is supernatural. This is our God. He's powerful. He can do all things. Look at verse 17. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after you. Because nobody in their right mind's going into an ocean split in two. <laughs> but I'm going to harden their hearts so that they'll go in after you. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and his, all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. So God hardens his heart of Pharaoh because it's impossible. What fool would do these things? And think about all these ten plagues and the death of the firstborn and so forth. But notice the I wills in this text. I will. I will harden. I will be honored. These are the promises of God. 
Look at verse 18. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Lord and I will be honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. God's glory will be on display before the Egyptians and everyone else. This power to speak and things happen with a most powerful war machine you know, in the world, great military minds are going to drive their chariots down into the bottom of an ocean. It's God, isn't it? And interesting enough, it's not just the Israelites who see his glory, but particularly the Egyptians. Isn't it funny? He wants them to see his glory. Uh, can you imagine the conversation when the ones, which we'll talk about this in a minute, some, it seems like maybe the army didn't get in or those are behind, what they're going to say when they get back. You guys didn't, you, you tell me you didn't do that. 19, the angel of the Lord who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from behind them and stood behind them. Well, sometimes the angel of the Lord is a messenger, sometimes it's a courier, um, but not always in human form. In, in this particular saying of the angel of the Lord, it, it seems to manifest this divine presence and that's usually, usually associated with a pre-incarnate Christ here. Second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And, and so I think he's there. I think he's part of this, right? And I think I prove this as I go on. And so, so this makes perfect sense when you understand that God says, I will be fighting against you. So possibly, it's a very strong possibility, this is Christ here. Verse 20 the Bible tells us, so it came between the camp of, the Egypt, uh, of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud along with darkness, yet it gave light as night. Thus, the one did not come near the other all night. So this pillar of a cloud, I, I think that's the reflection of the glory of God in that cloud. Then you have the angel of the Lord, which is not the pillar of the cloud. I think there's two different things happening here. And so this divine barrier between Israel and the Egyptians is made up of the glory of God and possibly the pre-incarnate Christ watching over and protecting his people. Man, if you don't think he loves us and, and watches over us as his children, he is the best father, best protector. Look at verse 20 as well, that this pillar of cloud is a reflection of the glory of God and this angel. And, and, and it seems that the glory of God, the angel, are, are light to his people, and it seems it's darkness to those who oppose him. Isn't that true? People, you share the gospel people, it's just like darkness, and they'll be angry at times. And, and, and yet to us, we, we hear this text and we go, wow, we have a great God. Other people read this text and go, that's terrible. That's, this is domineering a, another country. And, you know, they get all fired up over this stuff. Proverbs 4, verse 18 and 20 says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until a full day. But the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Well, finally, we get to our last point. God's great power inflames our faith. And here we really start to see the fulfillment of all of this, and we're going to go through this rather quickly, but just look at verse 31, because I, this is where I drew this last thought out of, the God's great power inflames our faith. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, reverence, awe, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. God's great power inflames our faith, and that's why we study the Bible, <laughs> That's why it's not built on some experiential, uh, though the Christian life is an experience, our life are not built on it, it's built on the word of God. And it inflames your faith when you study it. But notice quickly what happens here. Now, you know the story now, and now we're picking up with what we all know what happens. Then Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the water was divided. So in verse 21, you see the human instrument of Moses. God uses him. He has him stretch out his hand, his staff over the sea. And then you see God using his nature, his creation as an instrument, using this strong wind to dry these seas so they can pass on it. Verse 22, then the Egyptians took up the pursuit. No, excuse me, verse 22. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the, and, and the water were like walls to them on their right hand and on their left. Well, I, this verse leaves a lot to imagine, right? And if you've seen any Sunday school material or 
this illustrated in bad movies or, or wherever, um, there's a lot of room there to kind of think about, you know. I was a little kid, I'm kind of thinking, well, was there a whale swimming by, like an aquarium? I, I mean, you know, these things were big walls, right? And I think probably, probably, think about two to three million people passing this. This isn't an aisle of chairs, you know. This thing's miles wide, probably. Because these people are flooding down in there with their livestock, with all that they have. This is way wide, and I think there's quite a few reasons why. Well, one, I think the, the waters were large enough so the Egyptians couldn't get around it. They ha- he really is forcing them, with their hard hearts, right down into the depths of this sea. And he's going to keep them coming after them. Because there's where he's going to bring their demise. Verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen went in after them. (laughs) Went in after them. That scares me, right? Into the midst of the sea because we know the story, right? And so verse 23, we see the pillar of the angel, the pillar and the angel of the Lord. They're not allowing the Egyptians to go until God's perfect timing. And then right at the perfect timing, He opens the door, lets them pursue Israel, and what a big mistake that was. Look at verse 24 and 25. In the morning watch, at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariots and wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. And so the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord. Boy, you should have thought of this before. For the Lord is fighting for them against, for them against the Egyptians. Now, this third, this third watch, this morning watch, there's three watches. They work from um, 6 to 10, 10 to 2 in the morning, 2 in the morning to 6 in the morning. So I think it's right at 6, somewhere around there, crack of dawn, still not super light out he removes that barrier and lets them chase them down in there. Notice it says the Lord looked down. I think this is a special way that the Lord understood, uh, to understand the Lord, that he was present there. He's, he's in this pillar, the glory of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, he's there. There's something about the triune God. He's looking down, he's watching this happen. And as the army uh, the Egyptian army is advancing into the path through the sea. The Lord throws them into confusion. And you say, well, what did that look like? Well, maybe he, he caused them to panic as they realize we're down in the bottom of an ocean. <laughs> what are we doing here? We're better military-minded than this. We're supposed to take the high ground. And what are we doing? We're down in the low ground. They're, up on, they're already through. Maybe that hit them. Psalm 77 is really fun to read. Let me just give you an excerpt of it. There's more going on in here than the narrative tells us because Psalms gives us a little more. Psalm 77, 17 through 18. There's just not down in this muddy, this muddy soup that's starting to turn wet and these pillars of water. The Bible says the clouds poured out water on them. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. <laughs> now, hey, that nice day that they had going, that's all gone. This is a, a Florida thunderstorm happening, right? The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind, and the lightning lit up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. It's possible not only that these, these walls start to collapse, and the, and the ground starts to turn soupy, but there's thunder and lightning and even earthquakes going on. Oh my goodness, would your heart would have sunk um, in this? A third factor found in verse 25, uh, it says he caused the chariot wheels to swerve and he, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord himself is fighting against the Egyptians. Because um, they couldn't drive these chariots. These, these men who had mastered the art of fighting with chariots, they couldn't do them. The horses couldn't move. They were drowned in mud. I've caught in mug, mug bogs with horses. It's very, very dangerous. What will happen is you hit the mug bog, the horse will go down, start to struggle. You'll throw you off the front of it, and then he'll step on you to get himself out of the mud bog. They found cowboys missing for years and found them in mug bogs years later. And this is a scary situation. Horses are panicking. Um, soldiers are, are panicking. And, even, and eventually, even the Egyptians get to the point of of what's going on here, and they realize, here's the problem. That same God that turned the Nile into blood is fighting against us. What a realization. 
Verse 26 through 28, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the seas so that the water may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. There's a twofold nature of the divine acts of God is one, he delivers his people. Two, he brings divine judgment on those who reject him. I just don't know what else you see in that. He delivers his people and he judges those who reject him. There, there's no black and white sheep. <laughs> there's no sheep, half sheep, half goat. It's either sheep and goat. One of the other. There's no gray guys running around is what I meant to say there. He overthrows enemies and he delivers his people. He delivers his people and he overthrows enemies. That's what he'll do. And in the end, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus will do is separate. So in verse 27, at daybreak, the seas return to normal. Psalms 46.5 says God is in the midst of her, talking about the sea, and she will not be moved. God will help her. Excuse me. He, uh, excuse me. I'm on a wrong thought here. Um, I, this is a rabbit trail. I'll do it quickly. Often, often, God in the Bible reacts to things in the morning. Very in the morning. And the psalmist pick up on this. He says, in the midst of her, in the midst of the morning, he will not be moved. God will help when morning dawns. There's I couldn't believe how many Psalms were about how God reacts in the morning. Probably a good reason why we get up and go read our Bibles and spend time with him. Um, I don't know. It's, um, maybe there's something there we can talk about. It. But the Bible says that seas return to more, normal. Literally means it, they return to full depth. And then at the end of verse 27 and 28, you see the Egyptians scrambling for the seashore and doubtlessly recalling the God of the ten plagues and his power. And there is a complete loss, no survivors. It's a view of judgment day, isn't it? At some level. It's a view at judgment day. So most... Theologians I read believe that the chariot aspect of the Pharaoh's army was completely lost. There could have been others, other parts of this army that weren't in there. There's lots of people that write on this. Um, I, I really haven't landed on it, but what if there were, what would they have said when they went back? After all they've been through, plague after plague, what are you going to go back and tell your people at, back in Egypt? Well, we did it again. We got our tails handed to us. We tried to go against their God and he whipped us. What's amazing, and I said this earlier, is this event and so many other events precede the nation forever. As they go along, the, na- the other nations are afraid of them. They, they're in fear. The Bible says the men are unmoved because of fear of knowing what God did at this time. And so often the nation did not have to fight just because God had fought for them. Finally, we've got to close this out. Verse 29, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. He's going back to talk about how they passed. And the water was like a wall to them on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They go through on dry land. They're in the midst of the water. God delivers them. Great power he shows to do this. He destroys their enemies. And what washes up on the seashore is dead soldiers and dead horses. And they write a song about it. And you see it in verse 15. And they sing, and it starts with, I will sing, for he is highly exalted. Verse one, chapter 15, verse 1. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. And then finally, the result is worship, isn't it? In verse 31. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses for three days. No, I added that part. <laughs> We're going to see next week in three days they're going, where's our water? Wasn't the graves in Egyptian good enough? See, I think there's one lesson I just want to hit with this. If you want to just know God experientially and depend on all the experiences that you can maybe gather and get really caught up on those things, you're in a lot of trouble. If you want to believe his word, all of the experience of God becomes very powerful. Know him through the Bible. Know him through the Bible. Amen? Uh, thanks for bearing with me tonight. That's a fun passage. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for all those that are here 
physically those who are watching online. We're so grateful for our church family. We are very grateful for the word of God, Lord. I know many of us could sit here all night just studying and reading. It's so exciting to be in your word, Lord. Thank you for that. But Lord, as we go, may we uh, greet one another at a distance and just be glad to be here and thankful for our brothers and sisters watching. Um, but may you give us sweet rest tonight as we trust in a God who, who gives us his word, tells us what he's going to do in advance, and then does it. Lord, help us trust the word, not base our lives on experiences only, Lord. Lord, thank you for this time. Bless this church, Lord. Cause us to be Bible preachers, Bible believers, those who seek the lost. Lord, help us follow your plan that you've written down. In Jesus' name, amen.